0: Hi guys, today Brian Wood joins on the Mentality Podcast. During his 16 year military career, Brian led British troops across the full spectrum of battle, from training to fighting, from operations in the Balkans to high intensity combat in Iraq and Afghanistan. We go into depth about the Battle of Danny Boy. Brian led his men into the teeth of enemy fire in the first bayonet charge by British soldiers in 25 years. We talk about his struggling to transition into civilian life, but also how he coped with the public inquiry carried out by disgraced and discredited lawyer Phil Shiner, who was wrongly accusing Brian and his comrades of murder and mutilation of Iraqi militia fighters. Brian is a leader of men, and he's now taking his inspiration to the corporate world. He's an absolute hero. It's an incredible story. For two hours, I was fully engaged. And I think it's just an incredible, incredible testament to the guy that he is and how he's helping people, inspiring people now. I think we should just plunge straight into it. This is a real, no holds barred account of a hero's last 20 years. Brian, could you just start off, mate, by telling us the story of how you got up to to being in the army and and, and coming to the first stint of of what you did?
1: Yeah, no worries. And thanks very much for for inviting me over today. I mean it's been a it's been a long journey from south, but you know, you never let me down with the Yorkshire weather which is you know, <laughs> yeah, which is freezing out there, but it's all very good. And um like I said, I really appreciate you and you inviting me to tell my story Pleasure. On, the, Pleasure. on the mentality podcast. And you know, I was never really destined to join the army. Um earlier on in my career I was doing really well in my football. And uh, I was with, with actually Chelsea for a year, but it was just it was difficult because my dad was also serving in the military, and he was pushing on it with his career, and we were forever being late for training um, due to my dad not being able to get away early enough from work, and on the M25 with the traffic, and it was just you know it was a it was a problem. But I seen it out for a year, and we kind of both both agreed that we couldn't continue. Um, being late, and uh, it was it just wasn't practical. So I stepped away from Chelsea, but then was quickly picked up by Reading Football Club, and I spent three years at Reading and got to my final trial. And if I'm honest, I thought I was you know going to get a two-year professional contract. I was confident. I played really well throughout my three years there, and I got into the um, to the Porter Cabin on my last trial. And I knew by their coaches' faces that it was going to be bad news, which it did shock me really. I wasn't prepared for it, and uh, yeah, he turned around and just said, "It's been a it's been a real treat seeing me grow up and flourish, but I just haven't physically um, developed as quickly as they wanted to. I wasn't the Mark Hughes type player that they needed me to be. Um, I was too sort of skinny and." nimble and uh you know maybe if I was playing for Reading you know at the moment currently then it might have been a different story because clearly that's what we look for in a footballer now is to be lean and nimble and, and and quick but back in the day it was if you weren't strong and physical then it kind of it wasn't a forwards attribute so yeah it came to a close and it kind of upset me and I went home and that was it. I just made that sort of split-second decision that I was going to go and follow my dad's footsteps and my brother's footsteps and join the British Army and kind of fight for this great nation. And it's I'm I'm patriotic and, yeah, that's what I kind of wanted to do. Was it an eject reaction? Maybe. My dad always kind of reminds me of that. Um, But... Like I said, it was. It's been in the family for many, many years, and I sort of wanted to continue the tradition. Really,
0: yeah. So I mean, that that brings you um, to now, and and you've obviously been been through a lot. You've, you've there's a lot to your story, which I imagine you'll admit it's a, it's a massive roller coaster, and 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 the and the kind of ups and downs. I'd, I'd I'd just want to touch on, and I know you'll you'll touch on the story of of the Battle of Danny Boy um for for where that's brought you and before we go into that I remember looking at some of your stuff and some of the some of the stuff that kind of stuck out to me where it was talking about being awarded the military cross all the stuff where you've you've been awarded this by the queen and the the words that stuck out to me was courageous leadership and I think that's one of the the biggest factors for for you being being a, appearing on the podcast and and for for what's brought you through to to now, what's made you into a leader and and to to be able to for you to to come and tell your stories as as point as you can, I just I just wanted to ask you to touch on the the battle of Danny Boy and and to kind of frame that into what you think has got you to here today.
1: Yeah, it's not very often actually. I speak about the military cross because of the aftermath of what's gone on and. Well, and we'll talk about that, no doubt, later with the whole court case and stuff. And, you know, I wasn't the only one courageous that day. There was me and my fellow soldiers who um, were very courageous. And we did our job, clearly. I mean, that's what we we chose to do is we chose to fight, fight in the f- uh, front line. But I never expected to fix bayonets and go into close quarter battles, hand-to-hand fighting with you know, a superior dug-in enemy. Um yeah, and like the Battle of Danny Boy was the 14th of May 2004 and it was about 14:30 hours, hours blistering heat when I was conducting a vehicle checkpoint. And a vehicle checkpoint was just basic kind of drills. Um, it was, we were searching every sort of third car or a car that we deemed suspicious. We'll pull it over and we'll just courteously search that car. Um, we'll go from clean inside the vehicle to dirty um, yeah, and we'll just kind of, what we'll be looking for is any trafficking of weapon systems or any IED bomb making kit or biometrically we'll we'll be um, sort of testing the personnel who was driving that vehicle and, and anyone else who was in around that vehicle. We would have an interpreter with us to make sure that, you know, we can have this clear conversation and, and they knew exactly what our intent was. When I got a call on the radio and basically stick the the vehicle commander I got on the radio and basically told me to collapse the VCP, the vehicle checkpoint, and mount up into our armoured vehicle because there'd been an incident. So clearly I did that in an orderly fashion, collapsed the VCP, got into the back of the vehicle. And, you know, when I'm talking heat, this was in May in Iraq, and outside temperatures were probably 40, touching 45 degrees and then in the back of that vehicle, you know, an armored vehicle with zero aircon and and how much armor there is on there, you can only imagine it was oven and more. It really was like that. Um, so there was all of it, always an element of rehydration, rehydration, um, because you were just constantly sweating buckets, and it, it's not an exaggeration. So I got into the vehicle, and sometimes you want to be outside the vehicle rather than you know other than being in there because of the heat. Okay. But there'd been an incident. We got in. Um, I've got the headset on because the headset, the, the commander in the back of the vehicle with the dismounts, can only speak to the gunner, commander, and the driver. The dismounts then are relying on me to verbally brief them what I'm speaking about with the commander. So, it, Stick had told me that um, there'd been an incident and two coalition forces, British coalition forces, that had been hit from the Argyle and Southern Hollanders. One had a gunshot wound to the arm. Which kind of tore his tricep off, and another one was a, a, a gunshot wound to the leg. But this was quite serious because it was there's potential bleed out because it had been hit. It hit an archery. so the call came in that um, it was a sort of P1, as in it needs to we need to go in and now and extract this casualty. And uh, yeah, we kind of started moving rolling down the route 6 and this route 6 was a main supply route from from uh, Bajra all the way up through Alamara where we were into Baghdad so it was a vulnerable route anyway because they knew that that was where our main sort of trafficking of of road moves were and on the way down our vehicle was just hit by kind of the most violent situation that I've ever been in, even in the back of the vehicle. It just shook it like there was some sort of, you know, aftershock. It was really, you know, moving with the amount of incoming fire that it, it was sustaining. And I was in the back, kind of knew this was a pretty powerful attack. But I give the commander and the gunner their, their breathing time to kind of locate where this was coming from and then start returning fire. And also we had to then communicate to other vehicles to punch forward and go and extract these two casualties because now we were stuck in a fight. We still had this main effort, which was to attract, uh, extract these two casualties, which it was, it was communicated to other vehicles from a a different platoon, punched forward and continued that mission. And we were we were now at a static location and in a two-way gun engagement. I was still in the back of this armoured vehicle at this time. Um, obviously boiling hot. Adrenaline started to kind of step up slightly because we, were, we was in a contact. I, I wasn't in a, you know, I wasn't in the contact, but my vehicle was. And the gunner and commander were now engaging with the main armament, which is 30mm um, Raden. And the seven six two chain gun was, you know, really raining down on, on this position. I kind of give him maybe three to five minutes to, to get himself sorted out and to kind of get fixed and engage this this trench position. When I asked a question, you know, what are we up against? What is it? And uh, he was then re- started to trickle feed me information. It was, um, it looked like a fixed dug in enemy stronghold. There was a. Uh, 10 to 15 militia fighters that he could identify. The weapon systems were traditional uh, Middle Eastern weapon systems, AK-47s, RPGs, Dushka, which is a 12.5 caliber weapon. So if you get hit, I mean, you're pretty ripped to shreds if that's hitting you, uh, to name but a few weapon systems on the ground. And um, there was only three of us in the back. So I kind of thought, you know, that's not too bad because we're still in the vehicle. And I'll just kind of let them get on with it. And then, kind of five minutes down the line, where we weren't causing any effects, there was an identification that to really, mo- you know, to really cause effect, we needed boots on the ground. And a call came, which kind of changed my life forever, really. And that call was: "Would he prepare you and your men to dismount, fix bayonets, and launch a full frontal assault on this enemy stronghold?" And I kind of paused two three and done them emoji eyes, which I couldn't you know, I couldn't really believe for one that I was asked to do this, because this just never happens. It hasn't happened since the Falklands War, and even then they had a lot of cover. This was just plain desert. Um so I asked him to repeat that word of command and that order again. I was like, stick. Say again, mate. He was like, really listen in, prepare you and your men to fix bayonets and prepare to launch and conduct a full frontal attack on this dug-in stronghold. So I was then in tuned, fully in tuned then. I mean, my adrenaline then went into overdrive. It was, my heart was beating so hard. We had these like square little body armour plates in them days in 2004, the body armour, like, it, it was only two kind of plates, one in the front and one in the back. And I could hear it smashing against... Against this uh, body armor plate, but then
0: What's there's that, then that's your heart, like your heart pounding against it. Yeah, I mean, yeah. smashing
1: my heart, smashing against this body armor plate. Because like, is my now My the adrenaline now has gone into overdrive. It's gone into overpower. and I, it's it's yeah. not. It's a sensation that I've never really experienced before. Because I've kind of asked to get out of this armored vehicle, which is protecting me, and to launch into this position, which is. Um, were outnumbered outgunned and kind of it's against all odds to survive really so i had all this running through my headspace but also trying to inspire my guys in the back and i and i know fear and i know everyone gets scared it, it, every time you know every point in their life people will will get scared at some point and with fear I know it's contagious and as a young commander at 23 I was experiencing this overpowering of fear really grabbing hold of me and what I chose to do with that fear was I needed to channel it and push it in the right direction so I kind of I grabbed hold of it and sort of pushed it around my back and, and used it to kind of push me out of the vehicle because it's contagious right Fear is contagious. If you're going to sit on fear and let it overtake you, it's going to then hit on to the guys who are looking up to you to, to lead them. And they look up to you to you should be trusting in my decision making and you, you should be kind of wanting to follow me out of that vehicle. And if I'm going to like linger on that fear and it's going to overtake me, they're going to maybe second guess my decision making and my trust. Yeah. So yeah, I kind of used that fear and and sort of yeah, generated in, in what I thought was the right thing to do.
0: I think yeah, we were chatting earlier about that and it's it's quite it's quite um, a strong point really that that, that you were able to, to kinda of catch that fear, if you like. If you were you were conscious of that fear and you were able to catch it and and respond to it rather than react, if you know what I mean. Um and I, I, I guess that that that's a big difference, really, whether that's in sport, whether that's out in the field, and to be able to respond to it and 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 make a decision. You know that I imagine that's a cause for why you were that courageous leader, or why you were someone that were leading those men, and be, being able to make that decision, even though the 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 fears come up to some uh, unsurmountable level and and the adrenaline's in in overdrive is that do you think do you feel like that's something that that you were able to do when you think it's something you've learned or do you think you've learned it over time yeah i mean fear everyone
1: everyone reacts differently to fear and differently to situations and the military personnel is no different um it's just the way I dealt with it, I kind of used it to kind of pull me out of that vehicle and, and lead by example. And um, is it an element of training? Maybe. I think it's very individual because people do definitely react differently. Uh, I've seen it with, with my own eyes people kind of making different decision making under pressure. And it's not, you can't judge that. It's, it's everyone is different. It's, it's fight or flight, right? And, um, you just have to make the right course of action and the right decision, which suits you. And the bottom line is I was getting out of that vehicle and I was committing regardless. And I was hoping I wasn't going to be on my own. Um, but if I was, then I kind of, I would have kind of died trying because that's the sort of person that I I kind of am. I, I want to lead by the front and by example. Yeah, And, um, yeah I didn't let it kind of take over me I didn't like it I didn't didn't let it swamp me I kind of used it to the best effect and yeah and just got ready for that door to open and the time was yeah that, that was the time and it was like a mini sort of countdown where they were going to suppress the the enemy position when I was going to get out and kind of Run into a sort of bun line, and this bun line is it's a it was a tiny bit of cover from view and fire, so it was going to give me a chance to do my estimate and you know stick broom my commander basically gave me this countdown I remember it it was like five seconds, but it it felt like five hours it really did it was like really slow motion and um and when it got to three, the door started to open because it's on a hydraulic system because it's armored. It slowly started to open up, and the first thing you know, really, I remember was the brightness. It was so bright it made my eyes squint. And then I just remember kind of stepping out of the vehicle, hitting the kind of desert floor with the sand, and and just looking to my twelve o'clock, and I'd seen the the, the scar feature that he had told me to go to because it was going to give me some sort of protection before I went forward and I just went and I just ran with all my courage and sort of determination and true grit to get to this piece of cover to give me a chance and I remember running so hard and fast I dived on my stomach and I looked to my left hand side hoping that the guys were going to be following me and sure enough both of them it was just a great picture to see them both with their gritted teeth and their determination to come and follow me. And they kind of bounded in into like a linear feature, linear line. And I told them to check that they'd not been hit because it was so loud out there. I mean, yeah. it was so... i got no ear defence in or anything like that. It was just like my ears were ringing all over the place. I was kind of still disorientated. And then I wouldn't have known... I would never have known if I got hit because like I said, it's like an outer body experience. And I know that we've all... Experienced that kind of being nervous and and the, that adrenaline, whether it's not whether it's you stepping out into the championship final with all your adrenaline and your heart racing mm. to walking up the aisle and getting married or anything, what kind of gives you them butterflies? But this was tenfold. This was a drug like I've never experienced. It was an outer body experience. It really was. And you know, I kind of got there and I sort of make sure that I was alright and the other boys were alright and um, we kind of maybe. Started laughing because that's what you do when you when you when you when you're in that sort of situation. You start (laughs) giggling a little bit, and you're like, "What the fuck are we doing?" Much energy that you don't know. Yeah, exactly. And you're like, "What's going on here?" And still at this point, I'd never seen where the enemy position was. I hadn't identified it with my own eyes. The noise was like wild, and as we've just got onto the ground, I was speaking to Lads asking if they were okay, and there was a Challenger battle tank. So a huge battle tank had turned up on the position and uh, it fired its main armament. And, you know, people who know their vehicle recognition would, will tell you that, you know, a, a 105 Hesh round from a Challenger battle tank. I mean, it just causes all sorts of carnage and it, and it, you know, it fired over kind of our heads and, and flattened sort of the enemy depth that were beyond the main position Initially, um, and the kind of the shock wave what came with that was like, yeah, you know, it took your breath away really. It was like, bloody hell, that's noisy. And uh, yeah, I was kind of sort of told the lads I was going to peer up and get my eyes on this main position. So I snuggled up there like a, like a meerkat and peered over. And then I see it and I seen the chaos, what was going in there. I could see the exchange of fire that that position was having with the Warriors because it, when the Warriors give us... Suppressive fire. It was like a deception. The actual the militia fighters never knew that we were actually on the ground. Yeah, and uh, I peered over, and my initial thoughts was, "We've got no chance. This is kind of like maybe a suicide mission." But I was never going to let my troops know that. I was still going to be upbeat that we could achieve this, and you know, it is against all odds. But sometimes big shots come in, and I had to maintain that belief even though I thought, you know, our chances were slim. I did think that initially. Mm. And as I've gone back to kind of brief the guys and what I'd seen and, and sort of instill belief that everything can be okay, randomly two other lads turned up from another vehicle. And I was like, fucking hell, where have you been? What have you, ever, what have you been up to? They're like, all right, mate. And then, yeah, it was like a real moment. And uh, I kind of... I, Spoke to them about the stuff that I'd seen and my sort of estimate process that what I was going to do and how I was going to go forward, because Mark Biles, he was he was um, he was a rank above me, so now he was the main leader yeah. uh, on that position. So he he would have had the overall overriding call, um, but he agreed with what I'd said. We couldn't go right flanking because we never knew what was on the flank interference. We couldn't go left because we were going to be too near the what our own Warrior vehicles, and there could be a and um, there could be sort of a blue on blue, which is obviously friendly forces unfriendly forces. So we both agreed that we were just going to go hard fast through the middle and just attack that main main
0: position. Wow. Well, uh, <laughs> yeah, mate. It's it's somewhat like that. I mean. There must have been some sort of you know, sense of brotherhood or some like sense of communion that she, it's hard to kind of conceptualise really for I mean, we as, as a rugby player, I guess you you can go you can go so far as, as what we do on the field, what we do for each other, putting your body on the line in, in that sense. But yeah, you know, the hearing the story and hearing that decision, that kind of it is it is that courage, I guess, to to go and do it? it, it you know, it's it, it's the bare fact of it. It's that courage to go and do it. Um, you know, that's that's incredible. That's incredible, um, especially with that that overriding sense of fear. But I guess there's a a kind of a a sense of a union through that adversity. I guess that that that, that has brought you that far, but. I imagine it kind of goes a bit further than that.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, you can't take any anything away from any kind of sport and industry regards to their own values and, and what they mean. And yes, the British Army is governed by their values and standards, which are incredible and impeccable. But, you know, we're not too far off. I know it's different consequences, I get that. But it's still... We still run off the same values, the togetherness, the loyalty, the selflessness, commitment, you know, the passion, the courage, yeah. the ethos. And it's it's important to recognize that. And you should be dissecting each value as well and understanding what each actually mean instead of it just being written on a wall somewhere. Yeah. Um, and, you know, whether it be rugby or football or cricket, organizations still have these values and, and their mission. And it's not too dissimilar to what we have. I get it. It's different missions, clearly, because if we get it wrong, then we get casualties or someone dies. If you get it wrong, then, you know, kind of you're injured or you lose. So, but it's still, it's still hurtful, right? It's still, you don't want to, you don't want to win. You don't want to get hurt. You want to win everything that you do. You you want to, you've got desire. You've got that that brotherhood and that camaraderie. That's what it is. And would I take a bullet from the man left and right of me? 100% absolutely. Stone cold. Yes, I would, because that's what it's all about. Would I go through the compound red and go first in the door? Well, I should be doing that. Yeah, absolutely I would. So that's why I was going to take the first step over that trench or that cover ready to storm that main militia position because that's what we should be doing.
0: For for listeners as well, I just think it's probably making worth making a side note on that. Do you think that's you know, I feel like everyone kind of needs a sense of purpose in what they're doing, you know, whatever the job they're doing or who they share that purpose with. But do you think that's, you know, like you mentioned all those values, do you think that's kind of integral for for a guy nowadays to, to be able to hold those values up and be able to share it with, it might be the mates, it might be the teammates, it might be, you know you know, some sort of, of community they've got. Do you think that's that's important nowadays really? Yeah, I think it's happening more and more as well
1: with men yeah. and women. I, I, I really do believe that there is, you know, shared values. There is shared ethos and we should be bouncing off each other because we're now in an environment where it's inclusive. 100%. I mean, yeah. back in the day in the military, it was kind of, you're a private soldier. You get told to shut the fuck up and listen and do what you're told. Yeah. And now because the last 15 years we've been war fighting, they're so in tune. The private soldiers are on it. They've got the most important job as front line, yeah, front yeah. man on the front line. They've, they've got an incredible job. So yeah. they should be on the orders process. They should be delivering and giving their feedback or, or what they think is the right thing to do because they're part of this plan. It is huge and that's the way the culture is kind of changing as well within the military it is changing and it's and it's changed for the better because it's so important to be inclusive you can't you know just let any you know they're not just dogs bodies we are together and we need to attack this plan as a unit and not as individuals and even the military are, are starting to get it right so yeah everyone's got their their unifying purpose and and the, you know, it should be yeah. punching out together, and and with great values, and the values which are understood becomes great purpose.
0: And mm. yeah, that's that's a great point. And I, I know you mentioned fear before, and you uh, we were chatting earlier, and you you were talking about a situation that you faced where you you, you you probably admitted that you felt even more fear in that situation. And I think it was because you you were mentioning the reason was you, you had less control or you had less control to make that decision in 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 that in that that situation that you were faced with. Do you want to just touch on that just quickly on 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 that? Yeah, yeah. That, how you found was, yourself there?
1: It was actually like two weeks before the Battle of Danny Boy. We were going into a resupply, so there was a convoy of about five vehicles going through the heart of Alamar, And Alamar at this point was up; it was the the uprising. I mean, there was a huge uprising um, during my tour, uh, the Mardi army, basically we're going to smash every coalition forces, which were going to go into the city and And city fighting is really demanding anyway. It's, it's, it's very hard. It's disorientating. You're fighting in their back gardens. They're all over the rooftops. They're just all over you. And, uh, we were kind of going in to do a resupply to Simic House cause we had a, uh, one of our Y companies were on a stronghold actually in the city and they were under siege daily. And we were going in there to give them a resupply with the water rations, radio batteries, to name but a few things. And on the way in there, I mean, there's like a flag system that the militia use. So as soon as you go in there, they're on the rooftops and they start raising flags. So everyone else on the rooftops knows that that you've entered in the city. And then I remember hearing on the headset that... um, there was like a load of roadblocks and burning tires and sort of barricades up, and I knew I was—I knew that it was like a come on. Yeah, and we kind of we tried to navigate around these barriers, but never got really anywhere. And the next thing you know, we just got smashed with everything from the rooftops, and and I haven't experienced um, eighty-four Soviet Union missiles until that day as well, because they come straight through the side of our vehicle and straight out the other side so it was an like armoured <sighs> piercing and we've not experienced that before Yeah, because um, we thought we were kind of bulletproof being in that armoured vehicle and that Enough, shocked you yeah it definitely yeah. shocked us and it, it definitely ro- lowered morale also because we thought that this beast was untouchable and now they've got through yeah. and in the back of this vehicle was three of my, me plus two others my platoon commander had been uh, knocked unconscious because of the blast. He was on the turret floor decks unresponsive and I initially thought he was dead. My gunner, um, we had a big fire on the left-hand side of our vehicle. The gunner was burning and he was screaming, I'm burning, I'm burning. I was now in this thick, um, black smoke, not really kind of at that that point knowing what to do uh, because I couldn't see the other guys in the back. And... um, that's when kind of I experienced unmet fear head on and I was not in control of that situation, you know? So it was all out of my control. The the driver was the driver of that vehicle. I wasn't, I wasn't going to get out of that vehicle because I knew what was all over the rooftops. So I was in the back of this vehicle kind of screaming at the driver to drive out the killing area. And to try and deal with these casualties in the back. Cause and it, you, were this, you under
0: fire at this time as well? We were well? getting smashed. Yeah. yeah, smashed.
1: You could yeah. hear it all outside. Irvin wanted to get out. The lad in the back wanted to get out of his LMG, which is a light machine gun, and, and start having a dust up. But I was <sighs> like, listen to it out there, listen. Yeah. And you could hear it. T-t-ting, t-t-ting, yeah. t-t-ting. And then, yeah, uh, kind of. The fire was my main concern. I needed to get it out. And up above the door, there's like these little green fire extinguishers, but they're not like the conventional normal red extinguishers where you have the handle. It hasn't got that. Mm. So I was looking at this fucking stupid extinguisher and I was like, "How how do you press a button? How do you press a button on this? And then Irvin was like, you've got to smash the rear of it. So you punch the rear of it against the vehicle and then throw it onto the fire. And basically it just takes it all, it sucks out all the oxygen and freezes but what i didn't know is it also takes your your breath away as well so the lads in the back but i was committed i'd smashed it and i was like <laughs> shit and i've thrown it onto the fire and it and it did it done its job it, it kind of you know smothered smothered the fire yeah. but then also smothered our oxygen and like we were choking and spluttering and and it was like Funny. really the plume of like thick black smoke was starting to really get into my lungs and, and i remember years ago watching a film called backdraft which is a, a film about you know Fire, American firemen and I remember watching one scene on it that to kind of to have the filter through the black smoke they pour water over these cloths and then put it against their face and I, honestly I just remembered that in the moment I thought backdraft that's a beautiful thing right let's do it and I kind <laughs> of pour all- this water on these cloths and put it around <laughs> the guys' faces And but as I, as I poured the cloth the smoke started to clear and then I looked at Crucifix who was opposite me I mean a great name a New Zealand guy <laughs> and uh yeah his surname was crucifix but he was opposite <laughs> me in the vehicle and he had been hit with a massive huge bit of shrapnel size of a credit card but it basically took the bridge of his nose off and it was stuck in the upper, upper the upper side of his nose and his under you know sort of the lower um the lower side of his nose was like dangling down but he just looked at me unfazed non-emotional was just like just chatting to me and I was like Mate, your face is pretty fucked up, and I was like, I need <laughs> yeah. to sort. I need to sort that out. So like, I put a first field dressing on his nose, and then put that cloth over his mouth, and then Irving. I told him to wind his neck in because he ain't going to get out and fight on his own because he ain't going to win a fucking war on your own, so get yeah. a grip, put a cloth on his face, and then the vehicle then just started driving, but then I felt my feet wet. I thought, what the fuck is my feet getting wet here for? And I've looked down, and sure enough, I'm now up to my sort of waist in diesel because the diesel tanks in the back, it's a, you can only imagine how big these diesel tanks are for these armoured vehicles. Mm. I'm up to my, my waist in diesel, so that kind of started to make me flap a little bit because I'm thinking here, if there's a spark if it, here or if there's, yeah. a decent, if there's a decent naked flame here, we're up in smoke at high speed as well. Mm. So that was a big kind of emotional factor for me as well, thinking, fucking hell, could we go yeah. up in smoke here? This is not... This ain't never right. And then we ended up in that safe haven. So, yeah, I went from kind of one extreme to the other where I was probably meeting... Just about to meet a force head-on-head at close quarter battles and not really worried because i was in control of that i was commanding that Mm. but two weeks prior i was in the vehicle with no control and i just didn't like that and i know i said about um seeing your kind of life flash by quickly and i've always thought oh that's a bit of a chad saying that doesn't happen but i tell you now it flickered in front of my eyes it really did i had that moment then i thought you know what i don't think we're going to kind of make it out here yeah um but with the Battle of Danny Boy, yes, I initially thought we were outnumbered and we are outgunned and we kind of got a slim chance, but I was still in control of that kind of destiny. Um, yeah. yeah, and then fast forward and back onto the battlefield planes and during Danny Boy, we made a decision that we were going to go straight down the middle, hard, fast and aggressive with true great British spirit, with great values. And like I said, we were, we were going to die trying anyway.
0: Was there any talk between you, any talk between like you guys, obviously the two guys had joined and there were three... Uh...
1: Yeah, I mean, there was a quick communication. I sort of said to the um, to Mark was what I thought. He then done his estimate, kind of agreed with me, you know, and we just wished each of all the best and we were going to go. And, and how we sort of, and how we operate is once we're given, once we we both agree, we were, I was going to move first with... Um, rush, rushy, so we're going to move as a two, and then the three who were guys who were going to remain there. They were going to fire us in basically. So we always had one foot on the ground. We would then bound forward, and then we would suppress as they would move. So we're like we bound yeah. forward, but we always had one foot on the ground. But I remember kind of just about to go over the top, and it was and it was actually going over the top. It was kind of like Second World War material. Yeah. And now I kind of understand where my great granddad was kind of coming from when he was courageous and, and going over the top when that whistle went off, you know. I kind of felt that within. And I'm I'm not hugely religious, but I do believe he was on that battlefield with me that day, kind of guiding me. I kind of do believe that. And um, yeah, I kind of, it was time to go. And I was up with Rushy, went over the our cover that we had. And then I kind of felt naked, really. I, I felt that sort of, Exploited and and like twenty five foot tall because there was zero cover and I was like, fucking yeah. hell! I mean, we're out in the plains here.
0: And how long was how long was it from from where you you kind of set base temporarily to to where where the stronghold? One hundred and thirty meters, right. So yeah. it's gonna
1: be hard, fast and aggressive. Sure, sure. It's a, the the quickest hundred meters of you saying bow at yeah. high speed. <laughs> yeah. But it wow. wasn't. I mean, tactically you've got to be on point as well. You've got to present yourself as a smaller target, whether it's taking a knee or where it's taking a you know, the prime position i e line on your front. So it depends on what suits your fancy and uh, and zigzagging as you're moving forward to make yourself a harder target, which we which we're trained to do. So yeah. yeah, I mean we launched and we you know started to to bound forward and then we done another bound and i was kind of waiting for that dreaded man down cry man down man down but it never came and we bounded again and then we bounded again and we kind of got 50 meters away and now i'm a little bit older i kind of put myself in the kind of in that trench and as the enemy looking at these five courageous <laughs> mad courageous men running at me, not falling down and getting closer and closer. That's going to strip the fear into anyone. And it kind of what we were doing is is what we were actually doing because we were only 50 meters away now and I started to identify militia fighters getting up and moving back from their main defensive position. So withdrawing. uh, Withdrawing, absolutely. So we had the upper hand and that actually gave me an extra 10% and yeah. more belief that we could actually achieve the unachievable really. And we kept on getting closer and closer. And at this point there was bodies in and around the trench that had been hit from the warriors and also us as well. And then all of a sudden, before we went in to clear the remainder of that position, um, you, there's a word of command we use as pairs, 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 fight through. So you break into your pairs and you just go straight in and fight through that position. When you know about ten to fifteen feet away, the militia who was who who stayed and and was fighting threw their weapons down and surrendered. So we kind of had to go from a split second decision making from full violence to all of a sudden with a split you know split second decision to then go into the like the arrest and restraint mode which is to process that in a split second is a is is a demand it really is because your body is kind of in tuned to to fighting for its life to all of a sudden
0: you know looking after someone's life is and like what we did um are you still on edge here because obviously there's well it's it's, i guess it's a bit of an unwritten guide in it if if they've got, you know, put their weapons down, are you still on edge for if if anything else can go on? If if you can get blindsided or
1: yeah, one hundred percent. There was a lot of confusion. Someone said in you know, it was in one of the newspapers that it was like a textbook, you know, a, an infantry textbook assault, but it was far from it. Yeah, it was a lot of confusion, a lot of disorientation. You know, you were fighting for your life, then all of a sudden you had these people throwing their weapons down, and then you had to go into the arrest and restraint and there's weapons all over the place and I'm scared that someone's just going to pick up another weapon quickly and blindside me and engage me but we can't engage someone who's put their hands up because it's not what we're about we've got our card alpha that we adhere to which is basically our rules of engagement and the geneva convention so we, we yeah you can't you know you can't do that and we managed to turn it off I don't know how we did but we did and uh, then it went into kind of the, the the separation and the segregation of the enemy dead to the prison prisoner of war. So we sort of we plastic off them and we put mine tape across their eyes. And um, yeah, like we we did the best of, with the equipment that we had um, in 2004. And like I said, I was like 23 years old. I just got into this main position. A lot of confusion trying to segregate trying to sort the weapons, trying to unload all the weapons so there wasn't a threat to us and stuff like that. And then all of a sudden, my Sergeant Major sort of come in from nowhere and was like, Woody, what's happened? What's going on? And I was like, fucking hell, sir. It's like carnage. And um, and he was like, right, is the battlefield clear? And it was a huge integrity question for me because I really wanted to say it was because I didn't want to go through everything that I'd just done and and I was so lucky as well to then having to do it again. Uh, and I wasn't being a coward. I just you know I just experienced hand to hand combat, which hasn't happened for for many a year. And but he's asked me that question, and and clearly with our values, like we always touch on, I mean it's a huge integrity question. I said it's not clear on the approach. There was quite a few militia fighters that withdrew from this position he's like right okay you're going to come up with me and we're going to clear up the south bank he give me, me a reference point that we're going to clear to and i knew we would have come under effective enemy fire because i knew that this battle space wasn't clear and these militia fighters you know they'll fight to death and um or they'll surrender so we just needed to be kind of you know ready for anything really and within the first fifteen meters, sure enough, two militia fighters stood up on my left hand side. I took a knee, dropped both, engaged them both from you know maybe five five meters away. You know I could hear their sort of last gasps as as they hit the floor. My sergeant major really never gave me any time to to sort of dwell on what just happened. He told me to move, move now, move now, and then they bounded forward again. Another five meters on the right hand side, two militia fighters stood up. One was had an RPG. Uh, on the shoulder and, and an AK-47 to bear, and my sergeant major dropped dropped them to Tommy to move. And as I've moved again, I was kind of seen a, a muzzle coming out of this like hedgerow, tiny little hedgerow. And I said to sergeant major, "There's there's two enemy there." And then, sure, and as I've said it, they both stood up, and we we both then engaged the threat, eliminated the threat, moved forward, and then that was like kind of six enemy that we just come across within a short space of time, and I was. I felt really vulnerable and I, I even said to my sergeant major, look, I've, this, we're pretty vulnerable and he said, no, Woody, I agree. Let's go back to the main position, which was kind of 50 metres to our rear. And as we've turned away and we started bounding towards our main position where everyone else was, to the corner of my eye I see more movement and I've stood up and they're like directly behind me, these two militia fighters, stood up with weapons and then threw them on the floor and surrendered. And that kind of played my headspace a lot because I didn't, I didn't understand why they never sort of took our lives. You know why they never engaged us because our backs were turned. Yeah, we were massively vulnerable, and and they didn't. So we
0: then went in, grabbed them. What what reasons do you think that that the, the could have been? Or is that uh, I don't I really
1: that... I really don't know. I kind of ask myself that question yeah. very you know often, really, and I don't know. I can give you an answer. I just maybe they just thought that it was credit to us for, for being courageous and brave and maybe, you know, they didn't fancy it because we clearly, we had other members of the British force, you know, behind us as well. So, you know, they, yeah, they clearly wanted to, to stay alive. Um, and we, yeah, we took them back to the main position. And when I got there, that was kind of first time that I could sort of sit down and, start to take in really what had happened and the water that I was drinking was boiling hot because obviously, you know, it's it's red hot in in Iraq and there's no sort of cooling areas to cool this water off. So I was just taking a swig on the side of the bank and and then this crazy call came down from Brigade, which is like our super superiors, like really high up, basically told us to... um, to go and pick up all the enemy dead that we'd just closed with and destroyed, and I couldn't really process that initially. I just thought that's the wrong thing to do. I mean, you just don't do that. I mean, we, we know that's the wrong thing to do, and I couldn't understand it. But I was never going to question anyone's decision because I'm a young lance corporal, 23, and you know, I'm. I've been told by my superiors that that, that this is happening. And the reason why the call was made was because it was such a pre-planned attack on British forces, and we're in the middle of a, an uprising. The jihad that they thought the main militia leader was in and amongst either a POW prisoner of war or a militia who was killed in
0: action. So you but, had to you had to be sure of everyone then what, what had gone on and who was there and whether this fellow this 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 guy was there. So I guess so you had to completely go back through it all after yeah. not having time to process it whatsoever.
1: Yeah, for me, I mean in my opinion this is taking someone's life is a demand anyway and taking multiple people's lives, you know, regardless if it's enemy forces and when it's close quarter, you know, it's not from a distance, it's close quarters and you're hearing their last gasp is hard, but it's our job, right? But then to get told that you have to now go and revisit them and pick them up to then carry them and load them onto a vehicle—it's just—it's just not right. And um, and later on in life, that really did affect me. And uh, but clearly, you know, I did it. Jean Claude Fowler, our gunner for the the the, 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 uh, the vehicle. He was like being violently sick. Really sick, and I was like, "Just leave that. I'll, I'll go and pick him up." And kind of, we were just, you know, moving these bodies. Maybe sort of, I can't remember how many I moved personally. Maybe kind of eight to to ten, you know. But these are like young guys as well, eighteen years old to twenty three. And I know you, you you shouldn't really show that sort of remorse, but I am only human, and um, it's it's a it's a big thing to do. And we loaded them up. We then got onto the vehicles respectively because we obviously don't get onto the vehicles that the dead bodies are in. We kind of, there was two vehicles with dead bodies are in the back and then the other vehicles were split between the POWs and us. So I was kind of sharing a uh, a vehicle with a POW, a prisoner of war, a militia fighter. And uh, I remember being there like really exhausted and dehydrated and we only had one bottle of water left and kind of, we're drinking this water and i just, this the prisoner of was opposite of me and he's puckering his lips as if he wanted a drink and I was like well I'm not going to give him a drink man well, we've only got this one uh, three quarters of, of fluids left and we've just been fighting for the last five hours or whatever it was at this time it was getting dark and uh so I'm going to give it to the lads I'm going to give it to my boys in my vehicle because we look after your own first right yeah but you know that's to come up in the courtroom later on in um you know in the story but yeah, well, I looked after the guys with, uh, with the water and kind of headed back to camp. And we started the, the tracks on the vehicle started to roll. And then we came to a halt, and then the Challenger tank had broken down, so we had to wait another an hour and a half for the recovery team to come out and fix the Challenger battle tank. And then we rolled back into camp. And at this point, there's so much commotion on the front gate. The floodlights were on. I got out of the vehicle, walked around to the other vehicle with with the dead on the back, and then I was told to go around to to basically ground command the vehicle to the regimental aid post which was kind of about a, a 5 minute walk to the you know, this in the northern side of our forward operating base the fob got there the doctor was there kind of issuing out clear direction what needed to happen on the unload of the bodies you know making sure that we are unloading them properly but like you can only imagine what these bodies looked like i mean yeah. they were shredded ripped apart i mean disfigured
0: i mean there's we've only seen films and, and stuff like that but i imagine disfigurement bowels you know yeah i'm this shit piss and all everything going on in the back of that van you can uh, yeah van <laughs> fucking big van big van <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know but it's but that's it's that's a big big thing to look at and
1: no, and it's, and then that's what. It, and I've never done that before. So I was kind of it, this was me visiting this for the first time. And and like I said, some of the entry and exit wounds—they were getting hit by like thirty mil, and thirty mil will give you an exit wound the size of a football, and that's not an exaggeration. That's a fact because yeah. I'd seen it with my own eyes. And I'm I'm putting my arm around this body, and the next thing you know, I'm like going for his back, and it's like, what the fuck is this? Is this honking, and all sorts of falling out of them, and we're we're loading them onto this, you know onto the vehicles and then we get obviously we we'll are told by a doctor this is what needs to happen and yeah so I've said before that the armoured the rear door is on a hydraulic system so you have to kind of press this button and it, it, it hydraulically opens up the armoured door so I said to D Shape, like D shapes, this guy, he's a driver of one of the vehicles, but his nose is an orbit. So it's like he's been broken about 15 times. <laughs> it's on the side of his face, rinsed. And we've got these pasties in the military, and it's the shape of a D. So I just nicknamed him D Shape. I was like, right, D Shape, get that door open. And he's pressed the button, nothing, not a sound. And I knew straight away, I couldn't believe this day was was as bad as it was, but it was just about to get worse because the only way to open up that vehicle was someone had to climb through the turret, crawl over the bodies, and then manually crank, hand crank open from the inside because that's the only other way you could do it. So I was like, I can't believe it. I said, DJ, try that door again quickly. Nothing. I said, lads, you know as well as I do what has to happen now. And also... No one wants to do this. No one wants to do this and the fair the only fair way I can see doing this is doing Papers sciss of the stones and getting getting a bit of banter when we needed it the most because it was honking and sure enough, we played it papers of the stones like started whittling it down to the last two, which was d shaping someone else and d shaped lost and i kind of i kind of feel that he wanted to play that part because he do, he wasn't involved in the Battle of Danny because he stayed, he was a driver. So he was in his hatch the whole time. And yeah. so he didn't really, um, or clearly didn't want to do that. But I mean, he kind of, that was his participant, even though it was probably the worst bit. Um, mm. But he felt the need to kind of, he, he didn't really mind. So he's like put on a head torch and he started climbing through this turret and this smell was honking anyway. Because like you say, when someone's lost their life, they lose control of their body movements and you can only imagine like there's faeces all over the place there was fucking swampage everywhere and you know clots and guts and man fat you name it I'd seen it and I'd smelt it and it was it was horrendous and he's calling over all of this and I'm like we're reassuring him saying "Yep, you're well done D-shape keep working hard mate you're doing alright you're doing alright and he's like oh it's stinking it's gopping and it's obviously still boiling hot as well and it's, it was nasty. So he starts hand cranking the door open. It starts to come out. It starts to like it's in slow time, but it starts to hand crank open. You kind of got it to enough that you could squeeze out of it sideways. You know enough space. Yeah. And what happened on the battlefield was one of the militia fighters had been shot on the leg, but had played dead. And one of our boys didn't check his pulse. So it's a fault. You know, it's an after action review on and our skills because we didn't carry out the, the body checks that we should do with, with checking the pulse and we, we missed that one but he was loaded on as dead but this fucker's alive but we never knew that so d shape's in the hand cranking this door open next thing you know this militia fighter sits up bolt right in the back when it's dark <sighs> he's then screaming So i'm hearing this commotion in the back i said d shape, what are you up to talking to the dead Anyway,
0: I've looked into the dead. <laughs> <laughs> oh,
1: I've on. looked in there and he's got out and he's sprinted off down this road, sprinting, shouting, he's alive, he's alive. I thought, he's alive. I've looked in the back, no word of lie. This militia fire sat up bolt right and gave me the nod. Like, it's like as if say, so. alright mate. And I was like, get me out. What is going on here? Get yeah. out. So then we had to I pulled him out. The medic kind of started administrating first aid and, and sorting his, you know, his gunshot wound out. He was then processed as a as a prisoner of war and, and taken away for question. But I just couldn't believe. It. I thought this day is like, like phew, there's some bad oh, days. Dear. I mean, this just got worse. And we, we we were going back out the next day fighting in the city. So we needed to drain all the because a big armored vehicle like that. It's got like these access plates, which um, drain sort of the diesel and the oil and lubes. But we needed to undo these access plates to drain out the clots, this sh- shit, the piss and and all the man fat and so on and so forth. So we were underneath the vehicle undoing it and then it all kind of drained out. And it was just, it was gopping. it really was, it was just like a nightmare, it just wasn't ending really. Um, so we kind of drained the vehicle out and we needed to hose it down because we were using these vehicles the next day in a blistering heat again in 45 degree heat so I was like pure fatigued at this point now and so were the other guys and to be fair to the medics they come up and said look Woody we'll kind of wash your vehicle down we'll get it ready and we'll put it onto the dust bowl ready for you to to use the next day and uh
0: so what do you do that night then? what do you do after I, I tried that?
1: to kind of sort of
0: process what had
1: gone on and I needed to take my clothes I was covered in blood at this point so I was told that we needed to bag our clothes up and take them to the incinerator to get them burnt um, and then go to the medics and get our injections for hepatitis A because we didn't have any gloves on or anything like that Um so yeah I went went needed to get a shower because I was head to toe in blood and the showers weren't the greatest because they were field showers, so they're kind of, you know, well, they're good infantry showers, that's what we use, you know. Yes. It's, there's no luxury being a frontline soldier. So it was um, like a solar bag of water, and we would kind of put the sort of, the head of that shower, shower, the shower head on my body, on my head, and I kind of just leant against the wall, and I kind of just seen the uh, the blood and the sand and the grit, Trickle off into the, into the plug hole, and uh, just kind of shocked in, in a daze really, and couldn't quite come to terms of what had happened that day.
0: So what's so the, there's there's not much time to process or I guess decompress from all of that after after the, that 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 full on day, and you were you went back into into duty straight away the next day. Yeah. And then was it for, for another month, another month and a half before you had to come back home and, and return to civilian, civilian life?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, was, I had to return home. So we continued fighting, you're right. We continued that operational tour. It was a very kinetic, um, which means violent tour, engaging, engagement tour and fighting with the enemy. And um, I, I left that tour a month and a half early because I had to go on a promotional course, um, I tried to stay, but you yeah, know, m- my officer in charge of me was like, "No, buddy, you going back because you need to hit the right timelines because that's that's your promotional timeline, and we don't want to be kind of chasing it back up." It's fine, we can kind of cope without you now, and it's it's, it's all good. So one yeah one day I'm in in Iraq in Alamara, in the green zone, fighting hard with my men. And then the next day, I was knocking on my front door at home and uh, I left my son, my newborn son, who was three weeks old. I knocked on my door at home and and Lucy answered it with this six-month-old son. And um, obviously I was really excited to be going home and I never experienced being a dad really because the first kind of three weeks of the newborn is to spend time getting to know it's mother, you know, and having that really unique bond as, as they do. And then I was kind of away, uh, in Iraq, kind of fighting with the temper that we were, that we were under. And, uh, you know, I, I really wanted, I was desperate to be a dad. I was desperate to be a good dad. I was really excited to, to be home to, to kind of see Lucy and and my son. And it was just kind of, it was so much harder than what I thought it was going to be. You know, I would hold him, he knew he would be crying. I would feed him, he would cry. I would bath him, he would cry. I would tell him a story, he would cry. He just wanted his mum all the time. And I was just gutted about that. It gutted me inside that I couldn't, I was on like a fast crash course on how to be a dad and it was frustrating me. And I kind of resented Lucy for that as well for being such a good mum and and being kind of resilient while I was away and and I shouldn't have been doing that because she did what she had to do I mean she was a brand new mum as well we've not had any kids before so she was learning as she was going I was away she was on her own and she was coping and she coped and she got into a routine because they are very good human beings they just get on with it when you're away and and I kind of had a sort of jealous streak that I didn't have the bond that she and Bailey had. And yeah, it was kind of eaten away inside me. And I kind of had my outbursts on the way I would speak to her and I was being sort of the aggressor. I was never physical, but yeah. sometimes when you're, you know, badly spoken, it's kind of sometimes worse than being physical. And, and that's the point where I was getting to. And, uh, yeah, I was like in a kitchen one day making a bottle and it, I think it was too warm or it was, I filled it up too much and she kind of just tried to coach me into how to do it and I took that the wrong way and ended up smashing against the wall and telling her to kind of do it and my sort of bag was against the wall and she would mention it, that my bag and my boots and that were out and I was like, are you winding yeah. me up? You know, it's little things which were starting to bug me, which... And I think it was kind of the, the beginning stages of post-traumatic stress disorder and, and my kind of my headspace getting overloaded with everything that I was parking because I was an operator, I was a young commander, I was a frontline soldier and I was a leader of men and it never crossed my mind for one second that I needed some support with my headspace and with my mental headspace. Never crossed my mind. And no one would ever ask me to either because they would know I'd tell them straight. Um, so I kind of just cracked on and parked everything in my head and just kind of tried to deal with it my own way. And um, we're kind of home for six days, really, sort of, sort of, you know, roller coaster of a of a time period of our with my relationship. And yeah, I got a phone call my phone was ringing one morning and I kind of answered it and uh, it was my sergeant major on rear operations who deal with everything that happens in the UK while everyone's away and he said Woody how are you how are you you settling in is everything okay and I thought someone said anything to him you know someone said that Woody's struggling or I thought it can't be because it's only me and Lucy Lucy wouldn't have said anything I know that for a fact and I said yeah everything's fine sir And he said, mate, I've got some really bad news. And I said, oh, what's happened then? He said, Ray is being killed in Alamara and we need to repatriate him and would you be part of the burial party? And it really broke me, if I'm honest. It it, it absolutely broke me because I kind of joined at the same time as Ray and we... We were both keen footballers and he was chart and athletic, mad, always smiling. Regardless how much of a tough time we were having and and him at Simic House, always smiling. Yeah. You know, I was grateful.
0: Is is Ray one one of the guys who who was at the Battle of Danny Boy? or is it no, one of the guys he was, come up through the... He was
1: in Simic House, so he was in the heart of the city yeah. uh, of Alamara. And um but I knew obviously I went f- I joined kind of the same time with him. So we had that kind of that in common and, and we went kind of through our careers together. Yeah. And um, I just couldn't believe it really. I was, but I was absolutely going to do it because he should get the best send off that he deserves for, for, for fighting for his great country. And um, I didn't really know how hard it was going to be. So I left Lucy. I said to her, look, something's, you know, we've had Soldier Killed in action. I've been asked to kind of, repatriate him and I was off because we had to go to Bryce Norton to do all of our rehearsals before the Hercules came in to drop him off so I went away for a couple of days done the rehearsals for the full uh, military funeral and um, the morning came and we were out on the sort of on the wrong way side of the wrong way the Herc came in landed and the tailgate dropped and then the Sergeant Major said alright okay listen up, be brave, be courageous and give him a great send off. And we marched on to the to the runway up on the Hercules tailgates. And then that's when I first saw the, the coffin draped in the Union Jack, which really, really hurt. And I kind of gritted my teeth and tears kind of started to flow down my face. And um, yeah, I was trying to kind of get a grip of myself and make sure that I wanted to be focused on doing the right thing for him. But it's difficult, it's, you know, it's hard when you're such, you know, when you, I was young as well and I knew him really well and it was just, it was a tough, tough period. And then... It's tough,
0: it's tough to, I imagine it's tough to carry on putting on that kind of, that axe or that facade when, I mean, you you were at a raw time as well, coming back and struggling. And then, of course, you know, losing a mate who, who you've been through such a tough time with. Mm. You know, that, that must that must have wrecked, you know, that must have been a really tough time. and Especially in that situation where you're dealing with your own stuff, you know, and, and, and having to give him that send-off, you know, I imagine yeah. that was a really tough time.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, for me, I was kind of just opening up different paths and then just shutting them paths off, yeah. opening another path and then just walking down that. And this was another path. This was another journey that I had to do. And and it was an emotional journey that, you know, taking, you know, my Sergeant Major saying to me, right, us, six of us, right, okay, prepare to lift and then lifting that coffin and putting it on my shoulder and slow marching, slow marching down that tailgate onto the runway towards the hearst. And, yeah, his family screaming for him was an emotional draining time, it really was, and we went to kind of his favourite places for a minute silence, his cadets, where he grew up in his cadet force. Charlton Athletic, um, we done something for that and uh we take him took him to the Chapel of Rest and the next day in done the service and then laid him in lowered him into the ground and the last post played and yeah. Yeah. It was pretty brutal. Um, yeah, and then emotionally, it was just I was all over the place, really. Got home, tried to kind of try and understand what was going on at home where I really didn't. Um, really intense, really, yeah, on edge, both of us. And then five days, five or six days later, then I got another phone call that... Leo Callaghan had been shot and killed in Basra and you know I was asked if I would repatriate him also so then I had to go through that whole cycle again the emotional cycle of laying a, a fellow soldier and a brother to rest and he came from a big Catholic family Millwall f- football club mad and we yeah. went there actually and we'd done a we, a lap of one around the den and that was when actually Theo Pathetis and and uh, Dennis Wise was th- the uh, chairman in the gaffer and they gave us a shirt and um, some flowers yeah uh, and uh, yeah then we took Lee uh, to the to the cemetery and, and also lowered him into the ground and yeah really it was a really tough period Really tough, and with my own sort of personal issues in the air, with no one knew about it, was all behind closed doors mm. because my facade was powerful. I could put I could put it on, but behind closed doors, I was a shattered man.
0: Yeah, what what processes do you feel like that you went through? I know that's that's very short term, and that's that's very much in the aftermath of getting back. Do you feel like there were the, the process that you, that, you, that you went through to uh, that worked? After that, and then there was, of course, the time where you you received help, where you got help, how much did it take for you to to lead into that, and and how long did it take? Initially, I
1: kind of just shut my whole headspace off. I didn't really have any coping mechanisms. I didn't have any sort of purpose, um, because I didn't know how, really, to to deal with my headspace rather than shut everything off be the aggressor behind closed doors and take it out on my loved ones Mm -hmm. and kind of just get on with my my work in the military I knew how to be a soldier you see and as selfish as it is it was easier being in that environment than being at home so when I went away on my court when I went away on my course I I didn't mind being away because I knew how to be a soldier but I didn't know how to be a, a, a dad or a husband, I would just, I lost that kind of connection through what I'd kind of been through. Um, so I just kind of managed my own sort of headspace and it was definitely the wrong thing to do, but I—I I, that was me choosing to do that because... Was there a stigma? I think there was with myself, definitely. Like I was in an, an all-male organisation, 800 men strong. Like I said before, I was, you know, I was a leader. Yeah. I was a frontline soldier. I was never going to open up and reach out for help. I just kind of shut everything off and kind of dealt with it, how I was going to deal with it. And I cracked on for a couple more years. And and then I went on the uh, the Royal Marines Commando course to, to earn my green beret a, year, a few years later. Um, I was going down there to instruct as a uh, as a colour sergeant, so as a, as a senior NCO, non-commissioned officer. Um, and you're kind of handpicked to go down there um, because the army aren't going to send someone half-cocked to go down and, and instruct on the Royal Marines yeah. senior command course as corporals wanting to become sergeants. So I was kind of handpicked and I fancied it anyway and, and I went down there to do the commando course because I never had to, but I just thought, it's an extra sort of credibility. Um, it's the right thing to do. So I chose to do that. It was a nine week course and it was, yeah, and it was an arduous course and I just kind of, you know, got stuck into that and uh, and it was kind of halfway through the course. I got a phone call from my wife, um, really upset and I kind of said to her, what's the matter? Because she, she'll never phone me when I'm on course because she knows I'm head down, I've got to get on with it. And uh, she was like, I don't believe it. And I was like, what's the matter? She said, oh, there's a, there's a letter that's come through the door and it's, it's to do with a, a, a public inquiry and the allegations that are on the paper is murder, mutilation and mistreatment. And I was like, well, is my name on there? Definitely. She was like, yeah, it's to do with the Battle of Danny Boy. And like, it really, really um, threw me off course in sort of mentally... I uh, couldn't think of anything else, really. I was trying to concentrate on this co- commander course, and this was in the forefront of my mind. Yeah. I'm thinking, I've never been a murderer. What the hell about? What's, what's it, Where what, where's this come from? I never mutilated anyone. I mean, what this is barbaric. I mean, these are the most serious of allegations. Are you joking? And um, I did manage to get my head down and complete the course, and I got my green berry then. Then I kind of went back, and yeah, these, this was the... Uh, the allegations that were were made against me and my fellow soldiers that we were up against. Um, And it, yeah, it it done, it done a lot of damage. Uh, And it wasn't long after that, them allegations that I decided to kind of take the biggest step of my life
0: and reach out and knock on that door. So, in the timescale, the allegations they came in in two thousand and nine. Two
1: thousand and nine. Yeah, and it was it so was five years of coping, self-coping. Yeah, um, and damaging. Yeah. Relationships and and to the point that Lucy and I split up for a year and three months due yeah. to just the way I kind of was selfish and and the way I spoke to her and just the way you know I kind of wasn't brian i wasn't I wasn't woody it was yeah it was yeah, it was just a, a demanding period that I had really kind of backed off and backed off about- going out and asking for some help, which yeah i mean i i ended up doing i ended up knocking on the door in two thousand and twelve. so it was a decade it's 10 years and look it it wasn't too late 10 years too long 100% definitely because you know it was a lot of you know people I upset and it's a huge regret of mine for for doing that but I I eventually did it and um
0: and to be honest it's the best thing I've ever done was there a moment, was there one moment where you thought, yeah, it's you had, you had the, the freedom to do it or the comfort to do it? Is there any one moment that sticks out to you?
1: No, well, it, to be honest, it was a, a fellow colour sergeant. It was actually a Royal Marine, um, yeah. a fellow colour sergeant that had said that he'd done it. It was the best thing that he'd ever done. He would support me. He would be kind of my wingman for that. And um, he'll walk to the door with me and, and it's okay to talk. It's fine yeah not, we're, we're humans you know we're not machines yeah. we've got emotion and and if your headspace if you can't manage it then you should be getting you know you should be going to people who are professionals who understand and can manage it and can give you advice and guidance to manage it and like I said it was a long time coming but it wasn't too late and it changed my life really it really did um it gave me some great coping strategies early, early on. And then I use my own as well. Um, Once I kind of felt that I did the hardest step, I also joined on to some unifying purposes with my coaching. You know, I I love my football. I'm passionate about my, my sport. And um, I wanted to give something back to my community money from a small village. And it's important for me to do that. And, yeah, I kind of reached out to my local kids' football club and said, hey, look, you know, I can make a bit of a difference and yeah. I'm going to take on this team, football team. Ragged Rovers we were. I mean, we didn't have a zero kit, <laughs> you know, but I managed to scrimp and scrape and the majority of the kids that I'd, you know, taken on were from sort of sort of tough backgrounds uh, on on council estates outside where their parents kind of, you know, would would, would look at me, i pick the kids up and then they would just carry on their normal sort of yeah fixing a car or whatever but for me it was important so I had about 12 kids in the car I was like driving around (laughs) with a football team in my car like pure illegal and that but I just football I cared about and the kids I cared about I cared so much about it and I just wanted to really inspire them to to be the best that they can be and and to be the best version of them because I've been through quite a demanding process myself and I just wanted to give something back now I kind of felt more vibrant and more alive now and my instill
0: still some of them values for, yeah for absolutely guys, and yeah.
1: and I started to you know kind of you know feel me again, yeah. and it was
0: important for me to
1: give something back and you Now the first year we got promoted, which was unbelievable um and then the second year we missed out promotion to the Premier League by a point and uh yeah it was just it's just a yeah, great kind of roller coaster with the kids and it, it gave me that that buzz again with football and the emotional up and downs and and the link to sport as well, which massively helped me, hugely helped me. And then giving something back to charities I'm passionate about. So I started getting involved in uh, in some military charities and done some great fundraising events, whether it be in the Tower of London in big dinners for, for corporates and and sports personnel to absailing down the Spinnaker Tower in Portsmouth. Um, skydiving to then randomly I was with Jade Baldwin who lost both of his legs in Afghanistan above the knee Um, and he was having real problems on this kind of rehab where the femur where the blast had hit his healing of his sort of skin tissue around the, the stub area was just so sensitive and causing him an issue with his stubbies so he he was he just couldn't use them so he was wheelchair bound and with that comes a bit of depression because he started to put on weight and he just felt he just felt that he was just deteriorating and in his own headspace as well he was kind of going a bit you know on the left flankish and then he phoned me up one day and said mate there's some pioneering surgery which could change my life and I was like tell me about it mate tell me about it he said it's in Australia, it's called osseointegration. They insert titanium rods through the femur all the way up to your pelvis and basically you then with an Allen key you'll clip on these, the, the sort of legs where the joint is um, but it's like cost £95,000 and I was like we'll raise that money. We'll raise that money yeah. mate, we'll raise it. And the long and short of it is, we raised that money for him. And he flew to Australia. I think he was out there for about nine weeks. He had the operation and he had like a real intense um, learning to walk again. But now he's like playing golf. is it? He's tucking his kids into bed in the evening and and leaning over and giving them a kiss goodnight. You know, the things that we kind of take for granted that he's now got back in his life, which he was missing, which is incredible. And uh, yeah, I mean, and that gave me great sense of pride and achievement. And he also then was like, "Well, well, let's give something back together and let's do something pretty epic. Let's do an epic challenge. And I was like, yeah, whatever you want to do, mate. And he's like, let's cycle across America I said, mate, you got no legs. He said, don't <laughs> worry about that, mate. I said, you I want a handbike. No I said, you are aren't yeah. He said, yeah. He said, I am straight on that handbike and I'm, I'll, I'll, I'll handbike it. I was like, mate, that's unreal. <laughs> so that's like we put load of pen to paper, logistical, you know, planning, loads of sort of yeah. It was a it was a huge event that's in it's, itself because yeah. we took a team of ten over um, with people who are suffering from mental men- mental health and and physical. Um, scars as well so we did it started off in washington started punching through all these different states and then <laughs> i remember like west virginia red eye it was and we were going through this state and that uh, it just all the sort of front gardens backed onto the road and it's like very very weird but and they all had dogs but they was all chained up and we had obviously actions on being military, Jay being vulnerable. We said, after, dog, if there was a dog to come loose, make sure we box around him, like become his ring of steel. And um, so we can, like, sort of shoot the dog away. And anyway, I was cycling. Next thing I seen, I see this dog running <laughs> at us at high speed. I was like, dog, right. <laughs> and we went into this box formation. And then the dog kind of just give up and sort of petered out. And I was like, as I've shouted clear, I've like, shouted clear, dog, clear. And as I shouted, I looked again, I seen this hideous breed of a dog. It must have been a bear type looking dog with his tongue hanging out with the aggressive mode of his teeth, both top and set, bottom oh, set wow. out. And I was like, dog, right. And as I shouted dog, right, it was too late. It locked onto Jay because you know, he's on a hand bite, So he's yeah. really close to the floor. It locked onto his shoulder and then just like started like launching his head side to side, pulled him over. Jay's bike hit my bike. So I come off John Moore, the other lad on the team had hit the the front of his wheel, come off his bike. So there was me and him on the floor as well skidding out of Mayhem. control. Mayhem. Uncli- I unclipped my um, shoes from the thing, picked up my Bianchi bike and throw it at the dog. The dog <laughs> then like released on him. This crazy like redneck come up goes hey you guys what's going on here man and I was like mate your dog is cranky <laughs> yes. sort your dog out mate he's like no and he's like oh and I, and Jay was like mate it's not your dog's fault it's your fault for not having him on a lead yeah. and then he like Jay started getting all upset and he got out of his like because he was all upside down like with his little stumps and that and he was he like shoot himself to the side <laughs> of the road on his like with his arms and he was like Woody why is it always me he's like look at me I've not even got any legs it's fucking out of order I want to go home he said get me home on the next lift I'm going home I said leave out and uh, yeah so he had to go to like he went up to the local hospital and get himself like sort of stitched up and, and amended and I think he missed like 24 hours of the ride then he was back on the bike again kind of 24 hours later punching it out with his arms we called him the human tricep I mean he had some big old arms mate But, like, just, you know, going up some of these, like, inclines that we were doing, I didn't know how he was doing it. And I wanted to whinge. I wanted to say, oh, this is brutal. But I couldn't open my mouth because he wasn't even whinging. And I thought, well, if he ain't whinging, then certainly I ain't going to be moaning about that. So it's like, yeah, that was just a, a great... Yeah, it was a great achievement and also it was just the time I I needed it as well the, the like that time You needed that focus. Yeah, like I just needed to kind of get away goals. and go and just yeah. really sort of and look into my mindset and my headspace yeah. because when I was with the lads again it gave me that kind of thinking moment as well on the bike for hours on end, you know, we were doing six hours on six hours off six hours on for 14 days. And it gave me a kind of load of thinking time as well, yeah. which was great to kind of process a lot of things that I'd been speaking about prior and also kind of how to figure out how to manage a lot of things, which was just, yeah, it's what I needed. It was great.
0: Brilliant. I think it seems to fall into to three big, um, narratives really you know there's 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 all your kind of heroic and courageous stuff that you've done out there at the field and and stuff that people admire for for years and years and years there's the turning back to civilian life and and how you've managed that and and seeking help and how that's improved your life but also then there's there's the battle that you had off the field as well it was Phil Shiner yeah it was I guess it's the, the, the public inquiry really. Mm. And I think it's, it'd be worth if you could touch on that and, and explain that, that experience and, you know, in contrast to, to what, what you've been through before, what, how, how that would compare if you like.
1: Yeah, it was, so it was, yeah, it, it came out. Um, Lucy had said about the allegations. I kind of, that was a real tough test for me. Tough ride to keep my headspace kind of on trackish, but it was always going to test me to the to the maximum because like I said I've never been a murderer I've never mutilated anyone on purpose I've never done anything like that nothing what they were saying was true and when you're getting sort of when it's all out in the press and it's on you know in the media and there's videos getting run of it and people saying that you know there were victims and all that sort of stuff it's it puts you under pressure and it kind of you do think did I actually make the right decisions but I just done what I thought was the right thing as a 23 year old under under effective enemy fire from the militia so I was like just devastated and gutted that I would have text messages from friends and family asking what they've read in the media is it true did you unlawfully kill anyone no. did I kill any you know, civilians like no that I didn't do that That's that was not who I am and that's not what we did we stuck to our core values. We did something which was pretty courageous, and now, you know, and I and I went to the, I went to Buckingham Palace for it and to be recognised by the Queen, which I've very, you know, it's not very often now I talk about that because of mm. what's overshadowed. And you know, Winston Churchill once said that you know a medal shines, but it also casts a shadow, and unfortunately, there was a big shadow which being casted you know, on, on my life with what's happened. And yeah, I mean, this kind of went on, these allegations kind of back and forth for for five years. Um, 2009, they came out and uh, it took, you know, kind of a big, uh, you know, to and fro in of statements after interviews, after statements, after interviews until 2013, I was called to give evidence in court and get cross-examined by... Phil Shiner and his, and his team and I've never been to court before so I've never been goody two shoes but I've never done enough to warrant me going in, in into court so this was all new to me and you know, going into the courtroom and seeing all the commotion in there the the, the, the screens of the people on like, laptops and typewriters and there was like this glass screen that you could see in but you can't see out and there was big plasma screens and the bleachers because it was a public inquiry that was like Big sort of bleachers everywhere, and I was like, "This is stacked to the heavens, stacked." Yeah. And I was like, "Okay, this is really intimidating." It was really intimidating, and uh yeah, I was kind of. I had the morning session, so I went into the dock, swore the oath, and bosh, they were into me, cross-examining me on my statements and
0: and just it, one thing after the other. Did this did this cause you to second guess yourself as well? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you you know what happened and you know what Yeah, what...
1: I mean, uh, you, I, I wouldn't ever say that I'd ever second-guess myself because I knew what I did was right, but I relived it yeah. and kind of could I have done something different maybe? Yeah. Never 2nd guess my actions because I did what I had to do, but could I have done it differently? But I couldn't have done anything different. Mm. It was a split-second kind of decision-making process that, You know, we were engaged, heavily engaged, and we took the fight to them. They didn't expect men to get out of a vehicle and go and meet them head on. They never expected that, but that's what we're trained to do. And that's why we're the best in the world at what we do. It's a fact, because we've got people who are willing to put their lives on the line for this nation. And it's it's credit to not just me, but all British men and women in our organisation, because... without them you know God knows where we would be now and um, it's important so yeah going back to the courtroom it was like facing all these questions and trying to kind of be composed and you know it's it's actually not that long ago I actually read the transcripts because it's a public inquiry it's all on the the internet and stuff and I actually read my transcripts back and I was quite pleased the way I kind of dealt with um, the cross examination and um yeah it just it was just hard to take because i was getting questioned by people who have no credibility to me i mean they've not kind of done a yard in my boots and been under the pressures that i've been under and when when it's war fighting it's, it was war fighting and the the pressures that we are under we're under enough pressure as it is to and you know like you, you touched on earlier I, I fought a hard battle on operations in iraq and i've and i've been there to, twice to then fight an even harder battle back on UK soil. Where's yeah. it, where's the justice in that? That's the ultimate betrayal. You know, when my back was against the wall when all these allegations were flying around, not one person from the MAD or the government reached out to me and asked me if I was okay, if the family were okay, what support do I need? We're gonna get round you, we're reassuring you. I had to kind of take all that on my own shoulders, and no wonder I was in fucking tatters at some stages. Like, how, you, how can you cope with all of that sort of pressure? It's,
0: yeah.
1: I did manage to do it, but I mean, I was, I was absolutely hanging out.
0: Is there any moments in the court courtroom which you, you felt you felt that emotion come to a head, or you could you could feel that?
1: Yeah, when he when he said that there were innocent civilians. I mean. He, to me, then, he's called me a murderer, hasn't he? In, in that courtroom, yeah. which, you know, how, for one minute, explained to me how they were just farmers. That's what they said that they were. They said that they were innocent farmers, farming. Mm. What with 27 weapon systems, which were all charged up, good to go. I mean, what planet is everyone on? Mm. It's just, why am I even here telling you this? Because it's going to affect... Decision making by commanders when they're on when they go on more operations because they'll think if they make the wrong choice or if whatever decision they make if they could be where I am in that dock getting questioned my integrity as a commander because that's what you kept on going back to your integrity is in question and it's like no it's not mm. no it's your your integrity is in question because it's yeah. your sure false allegations that you you're you know smearing. it's uh you he's a shyster and um it's not fair it's um he's a charlatan mate and it's and it's just devastating really and it and clearly um this went on i'll give my evidence and then last year i think it was january last year the uh the chairman of the um, inquiry gave his summary hearing, and it was without foundation that it was a a pack of you know, deliberate lies. It was all fueled for greed, um, bloodthirsty public interest lawyers, which it ambulance completely chased. Yeah, yeah. Who then, you know, who were discredited, and they were you know, and with immediate effect. Yeah. But that doesn't take the, the the 10 years of pain and hurt and damage on careers fueled PTSD. It kind of played a lot with people's minds yeah. and, and life's really, it really did play a huge mind game with, and it was all to do with money, unfortunately. And our government system allowed, allowed that to happen. It had flaws in our system, they were paying middlemen, you know, Iraqis to come up with false claims, and and they were getting looked at, and it was just, you know, there was there was claims by made by American soldiers that they turned they turned them into to make British allegations because they knew that they would get looked at and they'll be getting money for that, and the government would be throwing this money at them to to pursue these false allegations on on British
0: soldiers. It's just was it, like, was it more of an option for them to go through the British? British kind of government because we system, had man. holes in our systems the yeah. Americans
1: were locked tight mate the Americans you ain't getting in nowhere near them mm. because they have got all their you know their ring of steel was tight yeah and ours has just got too many holes and um, and yeah. they got exploited by the this charlatan and yeah and unfortunately he done so much damage with careers um like I said fueled PTSD and and hurt
0: so many families and crumpled so many families. And you've, you've obviously learned so much over this, this past time. What, what is it that you're taking now? You're obviously speaking at Yorkshire Cricket Tomorrow. Yeah. You're taking it to the sports, sports industry, you're taking it to the business and the corporate world. What is it that you're taking through on, on this, from what you've learned, and, and what do you feel like you can offer in that world?
1: yeah a lot of its leadership i mean i've grown up um in an environment which thrives on on being a leader and what it what it means to lead whether it be by example whether it be inclusiveness whether it be to encourage thinking um this is all great um techniques which i've grown up within um understanding and and knowing my core values and each and every value, whether it be, you know, courage, selfless commitment, or loyalty, you know, integrity, determination. But it's all well and good then being plastered around the changing rooms or all over businesses or a business wall or on stickies, you know, papers. But actually, what do they mean? Yeah. What does integrity mean? What's an yeah. example of integrity? Is it doing the right thing when no one's watching? Is it when you go out to the training ground and you see a bottle on the floor and you've got people behind you so you feel that you're, you know, you're under pressure to pick that bottle up because someone might behind you, someone might say, why didn't you pick that up Steve? you? Yeah. You know, and put that in the bin. You might, what, what, what's, what's the issue there? Or is it doing it when you're the last person out of that gym because you're a little bit more, more motivated than anyone else? So you've gone in there and done the extra bit of work. You've turned off that lights, and that same bottle is at the bin. What do you do then? Mm. do you walk past the bottle or do you actually pick it up and put it in the bin that's an example of integrity a small example of integrity but that's how I dissect it you know courage you know what is courage is courage leading men under fire is courage going out to the field in a championship final with a small niggle or an injury is courage doing a deal where it's a little bit of risk versus reward, but you're having the courage to see you free on that deal, whether it's a broker deal, whether it's you know it's put, taking some something over the line, which kind of no one was going to make that decision other than you, and you took that chance. And what does risk versus reward look like? Mm. You know, I know they're on a you know different kind of spectrum because the risk and the reward in the military is if you risk it, you're going to if you get it wrong, you get casualties or someone dies in business you risk it you may lose a money or a deal which is kind of you can recoup that still hurts you know it's still got the same hurtful process and you still got the same evaluations on what went wrong with that um but they're kind of two different spectrums because you're playing with people's lives or you've got people's lives in your hands um and it's really important to to look at that them two risk versus reward and uh yeah, I mean, and my sort of my path on mental health and the importance of of speaking, you know, it's so important, especially nowadays as well. That there is a big kind of uh, percentage within the British Army of people taking their lives, and you know, it's hard coming out of an institutionalized bubble uh, into the real world, and you can see how that really does affect people when they can't make that transition and get it right, it really, it can then lead to one thing. Then it could kind of fuel that PTSD again. You then hit the alcohol and then you just kind of deteriorate like that. And mm. we we have got systems now in place and we're getting better at doing that. Um, we've just been funded 200 million. Uh, the government have funded 200 million to mm. really combat this mental health issue, which is a great start, like proper good start for us. And, um, long may it continue because it's it's so important that we look after um our servant next servant personnel yeah and that's what i can kind of yeah that's what i've been sort of offering up and and inspiring people that it not always lost you yeah. know if you if you have the right people around you and you believe in yourself you can kind of get through most things yeah. and um yeah i'm on this kind of journey at the moment i've been you know Brighton Football Club was a great three days for me loved it yeah um, you know I kind of think I made a bit of a difference there and I've done most of the county cricket teams now yeah Lloyds Bank and Santander and you know other kind of corporates within London uh, it, yeah just it seems to be working at the moment yeah. and like I it's mad because I'm just a, an ordinary dude from, from Hampshire which joined to to make a bit of a difference to our to our nation and
0: yeah I, I don't know how much uh how much ordinary you'd be mate uh to be honest brian it's um mate it's it, there's not many times where i've been blown away by much by someone's story and i just want to let them just go on and just talk to me on a podcast and not have, <laughs> have much to say mate that was brilliant because i like normally getting in and, and um, interrupting people but that were that were amazing and um I think I think we'll we'll round that up, Paul, and uh, you'll smash that tomorrow morning the to Yorkshire Cricket. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I'll, I'm going to follow your journey and I think we'll definitely link up in the future. You'll have to get back up to Leeds sometimes. I might get back down there, get, get down there to you. But um, I'd just say, Paul, where can we find you? For the listeners, where can we find you and where can we look into the stuff that you're doing? And we know you've got some big stuff coming up. Um, that, that you can't obviously put out just yet but you know where's the best details where's the best place to go and find yeah just
1: you? on I mean look oh, I'm no star by any stretch of imagination I'm just like I keep saying I'm just an ordinary dude but if you you know if, if the listeners kind of want to get onto this journey and find out um, where it may be going in the future and there is a lot of exciting things getting announced and it's it's kind of life changing stuff also yeah. so it would just be on the social media platforms um Twitter I don't even know what my Twitter handle is. I think it's, I think it's <laughs> Brian Wood MC number seven or something, you know, but I mean, I'm sure you can find, yeah, we'll find it. it through I mean, all yeah, stuff, definitely. Yeah. I think you'll put the links up, no yeah. doubt. Um, Instagram. And I kind of, i keep Facebook to my sort of close family. So I don't really. Yeah. Yeah. But this, yeah, the actual, the social platforms is, uh, f- yeah, Twitter and.
0: We'll put and all that stuff out and link it.
1: But no, it's been, you know, for me, it's, it's been a great honour for you to kind of invite me into into your home and and you, you in Leeds and uh, yeah you have to get you know, to a game next time no I'd love to I'd love to come in and, and you know speak to yeah to the Rhinos and because it's, it's I've worked in and grown up in within a team organisation I, I get you know working as a team the cohesion the mutual support the togetherness the brotherhood the camaraderie it's it's in abundance and uh, yeah. I, I really thrive on doing that so i'm not going to bother listeners anymore because I've, <laughs> I've, 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 I've waffled on, 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 on it, uh, i think the party long and no but it's been a treat and uh, I, hope, I
0: hope i hope that you got what you kind of wanted you No, know, you're a legend you're a legend mate no. absolute pleasure